If you would take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. If I were to give this book a theme, maybe with just one word, it would be the word assurance. The book of Hebrews is the book that will bring the believer full and complete and unshakable assurance. It's the path that you get put on that will lead you to a greater and greater awareness of the glory of salvation and the security that you have in Christ. And this really is the point that the author is making, and he says as much because ultimately the one who is responsible for maintaining those whom he has saved is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so if I were to give you an overview for our plan this morning, there are three big ideas here. We're going to look at the main point in the book of Hebrews. And then we're going to look back at what we'll call the perfect man, and then we will look forward at what we'll call the perfect ministry. So the main point, the perfect man and the perfect ministry. Let's look at the main point. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, that's where you'll find it. The author is kind enough to reveal to us the reason for writing the book. People who preach the Bible love to come across verses like this because it makes our job a lot easier. He says in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The main point of the book of Hebrews is that you ought to have an unwavering confidence and assurance in your Savior. Because your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who has risen from the dead and ascended to the throne in heaven where he sits to rule and reign in the glory and the majesty that had been his from all eternity that he has entered into the actual holy place that everything on earth represented. Whether it be a tabernacle, or a tent, or a temple, or a church, or anything that came here on earth, it is a representation of what is in heaven. It is a shadow. It was a type. And the real, the true, the authentic, the genuine, is what Christ himself has entered into to to rule and reign from, and therefore all of your hope is anchored in him. He ministers to us in that true tent that the Lord has set up and not man. I think that word minister is very important. We'll see it in a little while when we discuss the perfect ministry of Christ, but it's the idea of the ongoing service that is performed in order to bring glory to God. He is in charge of that. And as I mentioned earlier, it it is really Christ who secures us. It is Christ who makes our assurance real. If you're a Christian here and you battle with assurance, I'd like to speak to you for a moment. If you would acknowledge that there are times where you doubt your salvation or you doubt whether or not the gospel that you believe is really strong enough to save or to keep you saved. Maybe you've 
grown up in a church or in a Christian context where you're constantly instructed to reevaluate and examine yourself, uh, that you're given these benchmarks to measure up to, and when you don't, you begin to doubt whether or not you're really saved. You've been given standards of righteousness that might be cultural or unique to your church. And if you weren't able to live up to those, that people around you begin to doubt whether or not you really have been saved. So my word to you this morning is that if that's the case, then the root of your problem is not the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the fact that you have taken your eyes off of Jesus Christ and put it on your performance. In his excellent book, The Whole Christ, Sinclair Ferguson interacts at length with another book that was written several hundred years earlier called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. And in this book, it is written as a dialogue between several characters, and one of them is a person who is wrestling with their faith, and the wiser, older, more mature Christian at one point in this dialogue tries to bring comfort to this Christian who is wrestling with assurance. And the conclusion in this dialogue is that the Christian who is wrestling with assurance is often not really wrestling with assurance in Christ, but assurance of their assurance. And they are wrestling with confidence in their confidence. They are wrestling with faith in their faith. And they are wrestling with being faithful enough and being assured enough and being righteous enough and being Christian enough. And when your eyes are fixed on how you're doing relative to some standard that you've set up or somebody's placed over you, you will always doubt. But when your assurance is anchored to the proclamations that occur in the book of Hebrews about the once and for all finished work of Christ, if he's the object of your assurance, your assurance is so strong and unshakable and encouraging that it brings a lasting peace, the likes of which many people never understand, sadly. And I also have a word for some of you who are sitting here today and you are quite convinced that you, in fact, are not a Christian. And you might be convinced because you just know that this whole Christianity thing is unresolved in your mind. You're not sure, you're questioning it, you're a bit skeptical, you're, you're seeking for answers. Others of you have grown up in the church or maybe even in this church or in a Christian household and you know full well you don't really believe what your parents believe or what we believe here at this church. You've come here regularly and faithfully, not because you wanted to, but because you were brought. <laughs> and then others of you, and I, I would acknowledge there might be some of you here who are like this, are openly hostile against the gospel. I mean, you really not only don't believe it, but you quite frankly hate it. Uh, you think that it's crazy. Uh, you, you don't even want to understand it. And yet, I have some wonderful good news this morning, and that is that the gospel, the good news, has reached people in all three categories and has ever since it was first proclaimed. Uh, that it has rescued 
people who are skeptical and seeking. It has rescued people uh, who have simply grown up in the church, either thinking or knowing they are not saved. Uh, it has rescued people who are the most ardent opponents against it. It even rescued someone like Saul, who is on his way to persecute people who are part of the church. I would also remind you that the gospel is there for the nominal cultural Christians. Nominal cultural Christianity is all the rage today. In fact, in any given city or any given county, and ours is not excluded, there are very large mega temples to nominal Christianity or cultural Christianity or pietistic Christianity. And my argument would be that on a morning like this, it is good for us to rejoice in the fact that we do assemble together dedicated to not promoting that, not promoting Christian merely as a, a cultural phenomenon, not, not simply being so-called Christian, but really just politically conservative, or being so-called Christian and really just family values oriented. Rather, we understand that to be truly Christian is to be truly theologically aligned with what Scripture teaches about the gospel, with all of its wonderful promises and all of its expectations. Now with that as sort of the central focus of the letter that was written, I go back to remind you of what he says here, and that is that your assurance, your truth, your gospel, the thing that you understand and believe is the good news is anchored in the reality that Christ has already done what he has said he would do. Everything he required, he has provided in the work of Jesus Christ. Every good work, perfect work, absolute adherence to the law was fulfilled and Christ did it for you and then took that completed work back with him into glory and now intercedes for you if you are a Christian by claiming that perfect, holy, righteous obedience on your behalf. And that is because he was the perfect man. Let's take a look at our second point, and that is the, the perfect man. This is what occupied our study in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 7. He was the perfect man really in two ways. He was the perfect prophet and the perfect priest. And just so you see my strategy this morning, I'm, I'm going to give you a text of Scripture that would sort of make my point from the book and then an application of that for us. So under this heading of the perfect man... Let's be reminded that he was the perfect prophet. And by prophet, I mean one who speaks for God. In the first seven chapters of this particular letter, there are several people who are said to speak for God. And he did this in various ways and at various times. We see at the beginning of the letter, he did it through various individuals. But if he is going to be the perfect prophet, he needs to speak God's word. And so where I would go to prove that point is chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. So look back at the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and this kind of lays out that particular argument. The whole letter begins like this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, notice the contrast, these last days, this cumulative revelation that has been coming to us, he has spoken by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, the author begins with the end in mind, which is to tell you that Christ came to be the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the prophets had pointed to. You see, we read the Old Testament in light of the new. It helps us to understand everything that they were pointing to. It helps us to see more clearly what these types were, what these indications and foreshadowings were. We see now, because he has come, that everything that was said about this coming glorious redeemer was fulfilled in him. So not only is he the perfect prophet, but he is the fulfillment of the prophecies. I see this most clearly explained for us in chapter two, verses one to four. It's easier to understand. He is the perfect prophet, chapter one, verses one to four, fulfilled here in chapter two, verses one to four, because the writer says this, therefore, as a consequence of what we just said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard Uh, The voice of God through his scripture, the voice of God through the gospel. What have you heard about Christ? You must hear it, listen to it, lest we drift away from it, lest you hear it and ignore it. And, And even today, that word goes forward. Remember, the gospel is proclaimed universally. The gospel is proclaimed to every creature. We don't try to discern who is qualified to hear it because we think there's a greater likelihood that they will respond. The gospel is preached to everybody. And so when it's proclaimed, you're instructed to hear it. And I can echo with all authority of God's word that you today must listen to what is being said. Listen to this word. Lest you drift away, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, meaning the messengers beforehand, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If God is truly going to uphold his law and he will judge according to the law, then somebody has to come to fulfill that law. If not, you are going to have to fulfill it yourself and you can't and you neglect the salvation that is offered to you in Christ and you will then have to stand or fall on your own merit. And I guarantee you, my friend, no matter who you are or how good you think you are, you will fall. It was declared at first by the Lord And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This glorious gospel demonstrated in Christ, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, and even today in his church. He is the perfect man, the perfect prophet. Secondly, though, he is also the perfect priest. Uh, Flip over, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 7. This was a section that we looked at studying the man Melchizedek, a really enigmatic figure, a mysterious man, kind of a superhero of the old covenant, somebody who Abraham himself paid tribute to, gave him an offering, the way he would give an offering to a priest. The problem is Melchizedek was not from the Levitical line, mostly because Levi had not been born yet. He was not a Levitical priest. He was not a priest established by God the way they would be later. 
He comes from an eternal priesthood, a priesthood that rises above the priesthood that would be established later. And that is why Jesus is said to come from that kind of priesthood because Jesus himself was not a Levite and yet he was the perfect priest. And so what we read here in chapter seven, and I would direct your eyes to verse 22 through 25, I'll kind of anchor my thoughts there. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The author had just finished making a long discussion about how the priests that had come before had lived and served and died. They were like everybody else, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, you are gonna live, love, die, and be forgotten. They were normal men. They were sinners themselves. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. In contrast to that, Jesus Christ offered himself as the sacrifice once and for all because he was perfect and therefore enters in to the ultimate throne of God. And not with blood that comes from an animal, but with his own that he might then sanctify and set apart those whom the Father had chosen to give to him. Now I see this played out clearly for us, if you will, in chapter four, verses 14 to 16. Uh, this would be the therefore, the consequence, the, the, the so that. Why does that matter? How does it flesh out for us? Chapter four, verse 14 through 16 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see, believers share a confession. In fact, for the larger part of the history of the church since Pentecost, churches have gathered around a common confession. There are wonderful confessions that have been written. They began early on as recorded for us in scripture in hymns, sections of the Bible that were set apart in a way that you could sing or say or quote, easily memorized. They became the creeds of the early church, which later became the confessions of the church after the Reformation. In fact, right to this very day, Churches can unite around a confession of faith which helps to provide the answers to the people in the church who are searching for them. And it gives the leadership and the teachers in the church a guide so that they don't have to try to say everything about everything in every sermon. It is these great confessions that bind us together. And he says that we hold fast to our confession. Obviously, at the time of the writing of this inspired epistle, he wasn't thinking about the confessions that would happen after the Reformation, but, but it's the core of the confession. What do we believe about Christ? And he says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with what confidence? Brother or sister in Christ, if you are lacking confidence, be reminded of what's being said here. It is 
a consequence of what Christ has done and what we confess and what the church has been taught and as Christians believed that we are able with absolute confidence to come to him knowing that we draw near not to a throne of judgment but to a throne of grace. And the reason the throne of judgment is not a throne of judgment for you this morning, if you're a Christian, it is not a throne of condemnation, but a throne of grace, is because God, who cannot change, brought his own son before the throne of condemnation and condemned him on your behalf so that you could say with the author to the Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but only the grace offered to us so that he would take our penalty that he might give us his earned righteousness. So we receive from him mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. He is the perfect man, the perfect prophet, and the perfect priest. But I want you to notice as well this morning, just by way of reminder, that he also commits the perfect ministry, performs the perfect ministry. We see that going back now on the other side of chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, kind of the downward slope on this continental divide into the other application of his ministry. And we're going to see four things this morning that he does, four things that demonstrate his perfect ministry. The word ministry is where we get our English word liturgy from. It is the ongoing active kind of worship within the church. How, how do we bring our praise to God? It is thankfully brought for us on behalf of God himself. It is Christ who goes before us into the throne of God. It is the Holy Spirit who goes before us into the heavenlies with our prayers. It is God himself who ministers our worship to God himself, therefore making it perfect at all times. And his perfect ministry is played out, number one, in our worship. Look at chapter eight, verses six and seven. Chapter eight, verses six and seven. Perhaps this has never dawned on you before, and maybe you weren't here when we studied this originally, but listen to these words, let them inform you. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The ministry that Christ has is as much better as the new covenant is than the old. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see, the author is explaining to us that there is a perfect ministry, a perfect covenant played out between God and man, not because man has learned how to do it perfectly, but because the second man who came, the perfect man, did it. When the original covenant was made with Abram or Abraham, God put Abraham to sleep. God made it impossible for Abraham to sign the contract. And so what God did instead was that God made the contract with Abraham. But he made it with Abraham and for Abraham, therefore saying he will uphold his end of the covenant and Abraham's end of the covenant, even though Abraham was a fallen man and he knew Abraham couldn't. You see, God put himself in a position where he had to obey for Abraham and pay the penalty for Abraham. So he sent a second Abraham, a perfect Abraham, a perfect Adam, a perfect David, a perfect Moses, 
in the man, Jesus Christ, so that he would then be able to live up perfectly where Abraham, God knew, would fail, but also pay the price that only an Abrahamic person could pay, meaning a human who had to die. <laughs> That's what makes it better. That's what makes it perfect. And that obedience is what's brought in to the heavenly throne room of God and pleaded on your behalf and on mine if you were a Christian this morning. Therefore, it is worship instead of religion. Look at chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. This is what it solves. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. That means the old covenant, the old structure which is symbolic of the present age, according to this, the gifts and the sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You can't do perfect worship in the old covenant system, but it deals only with food and drink and washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Isn't it glorious to know that when Christ came, it was a reformation? We celebrate the Reformation in the 1500s that rescued the gospel from the grip of the Roman Catholic Church, but what we really need to celebrate is the ultimate Reformation that happened when Christ came to reform and to perfect the old covenant that was never instituted for us to try to live up to perfectly. It was only meant to present to us an impossible standard by which we would recognize that, cry out for help, and see the perfect one in Christ. Therefore, he gives us true worship instead of religion. That's part of his perfect ministry. Number two, he gives us perfect redemption. Look at chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Here's the basis for that statement. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, so it's not a tent or a tabernacle or a temple. You don't need to worry about those things anymore. You, you don't need to worry that we don't have a tent or a tabernacle or some physical place. You don't have to get wrapped up with making your Christian pilgrimage to the Holy Land so you can touch the place where Jesus was laid in the tomb since we have no idea where that was anyway. You don't need to recreate tabernacles and temples and walk through them to get some sort of special spiritual high. Those things were all indications of what was intended to pass away. And this is the whole point of the letter to the Hebrews. Don't go back to that. It's not important for you. You are a new covenant Christian. And so he says, none of these things were important. None of these things were ultimately valuable. They are all those things that were imperfect. And so verse 12, he entered once and for all into the real place, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption. Does it strike you as a bit peculiar that Jesus Christ himself, by the standards and laws of the old covenant, would not have been permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ himself would have entered onto the temple complex the way everyone else would have, and he would have made his way through the court of the women and through the court of the Gentiles and then into the place where the Jews could stand. But the moment that the gate was presented to him that kept out everyone who was not of Levitical descent, he would have been stopped. 
He would have been arrested or killed had he tried to get anywhere near the Holy of Holies. And isn't it wonderful to know that Christ didn't need to go into the Holy of Holies in some temple in the Middle East. He was able to go into the Holy of Holies of heaven, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood, securing for us not a shadow redemption pointing to him, but an ultimate redemption that was through him. Amen? That's the essence of Hebrews. That's what some of these Christians, because of persecution, were tempted to reject and go back to the old system. And so he offers ultimate redemption instead of just ritual. Look at chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. Chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. Here's what it solves, folks. Here's the application. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Just pause there for a moment. Doesn't that seem laborious? Doesn't that seem like it's intended to make you believe that this is some ongoing repetitive action that doesn't have any ultimate consequences? It is sort of futile. It's the same thing every day. It can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. <laughs> no high priest sat down. No high priest in the old system sat down. There was no chair in the Holy of Holies. In fact, as tradition tells us, not only did you not sit down, you didn't stop moving. In fact, they put little bells in the bottom of your robe and you kept doing this little shimmy and shake the whole time you were in there to make the bells go off so that the people outside didn't think that maybe you had come in with some sort of sin problem and God struck you dead for being in his presence. Nobody sat down, nobody rested, nobody waited. I can't speak for every high priest who ever walked into that place, but I would imagine that if it was me, I would be so terrified, I would want to get in and out of there as soon as possible. It says here of Christ, he came in and he entered once and he sat down and he is now waiting for what? For that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet, until the not yet becomes already. When everything that is said of him that will happen will happen, when the final kingdom that has been inaugurated will be consummated because for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified not progressively sanctified but those who are in time and space one by one being set apart in accordance with the eternal plan of the father Therefore, the perfect ministry of Jesus is that he gives us worship and not religion. He gives us redemption and not ritual. Number three, I told you there were four. Number three, faith. He gives us faith. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and you need to go back and listen to the messages on that if you have a misunderstanding of what that means, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the archegos, the captain, the pioneer, the, the one who goes out before us to fight for us. The one who did it all, the one who ran the race on our behalf, who not only created it, founded it, but also perfected it and lived it out who, because of that joy that was set before him, endured what happened in between, namely the cross, despising, thinking down, dodging it, brushing it aside, all the shame attached to it, 
and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is where you will find him. That is where he is because his work is done. And therefore, he gives us faith versus fear. Look down at chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. What does this mean? What does this ministry give us? If the ministry of worship rescues us from religion, if the ministry of redemption rescues us from the ongoing rituals, then the ministry of faith is going to rescue you from fear. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 12 say, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voices whose words made the hearer beg that no further message be spoken to them. You see, that was the context of the Old Covenant. It was one of fear. You didn't want to approach the mountain. You didn't want to be where God is. Believe me. There wasn't a single person who was presented with a vision of the glory of God who was not utterly destroyed by that vision, either in reality or emotionally and psychologically and personally. When Isaiah was presented with the glory of God, he fell down and said, I am disintegrating. I'm being destroyed by this. People who realized that they had witnessed God himself, even a theophany or a Christophany, a human manifestation of God, they said to themselves, we're doomed, we're dead. There's no way that we can possibly live because we have seen and interacted with the holy God. There was a fear that existed, and rightfully so, but through Christ that fear is taken away, and in faith we approach boldly with confidence because of what he has done. Let me give you one more, and that is covenant. That is covenant. Notice chapter 7, verse 22. This will give us a little bit of a lead-in to what the author is going to explain later on. Chapter 7, verse 22. He said, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There is something better that is coming. And then later on in the book, he describes what that is. Look at chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. We just looked at this last week, the majestic benediction. He says this, now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, the covenant that was established before the foundation of the world. Some might call this the covenant of redemption. I think here likely the new covenant is in mind, the covenant he had in mind that Christ would come and and inaugurate, that he would come and in his blood fulfill the requirements for. May this then equip you with everything good that you may do as will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, there is an instruction, there is a requirement, there is a demand. You know, this is why in so many contexts and so many corners of modern evangelicalism, there seems to be a widespread ignorance as to the actual expectations of God on us. I don't give much credibility to surveys, especially when the surveyor says that they have surveyed evangelical Christians, because quite frankly, I don't think most people know what an evangelical Christian is, and I don't think most people who are chosen to be represented in that survey really are Christians at all. But if they are, then we are in a terrible state in modern evangelicalism, because 
It seems like nearly half the people out there don't have any true concept of who Christ really is or what he has really required of us. So you say to me, well, does that mean that all this talk of faith and trust means we can just abandon everything that uh, we've been told growing up we're supposed to do to please him in terms of our life? And the answer is no. In fact, this text is very clear. We're to please him and we're to do his will, but not as a way to pay him back for something and not as a way to gauge how much he loves us. There's not an up and down going on. I was at a home recently with some of our church members enjoying some time together, a fellowship, and I noticed that one of the board games that they had was Candyland. And um, I trust it's for their children and not for them, but you know what? Hey, if that's your favorite game, you can play it. But you know, Candyland, it's kind of a shoots and ladders strategy. You go up and you slide down, you go up and you slide down, you go up and you slide down. You ever met Candyland Christians? Got a lot of Candyland Christians out there. One day they're up because they've done real well. They read their Bible. Here we are. It is January the 8th, and they have read their Bible eight days in a row. Up the ladder. And then we got some Christians that are all the way down at the bottom again because something happened yesterday, and they weren't able to get to it, and now they've got to start all over again, or they've got to make it up somehow. You know, that isn't the kind of works we're talking about. What we're talking about here is the works that are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit. It's the fruit it's, it's what is evidenced in you because you are a new creature, you're a new creation. And so what's beautiful about this truth is that he gives us a covenant to allow us to be able to do that. And what that answers is back in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And this is what it's going to cost. Chapter 13, 13 and 14, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see, he's given you a covenant, not a culture. I'm not in a culture war, because I'm not fighting for this culture. I'm not fighting for morality. I'm not fighting to call a nation back to God, because the nation was never for God. I'm not worried about what's going on so much around me. I'm concerned about what's going on within me and within the church, the chosen people of God that he has set apart to be his holy, visible representatives on this earth until he returns to judge the living and the dead, destroy it and recreate it and repopulate it with us to be with him forever. But, but if you think somehow you're going to be able to rescue this from its ultimate demise, then... It's not time well spent. We're not reconstructionists. We're not post-millennials. We, we don't believe in theonomy. We're not trying to impose some idea of God's law on the world to therefore restore it. What we're acknowledging is that we're going to suffer. We're going to be outside the camp. We're going to be the rejects. We're going to be the cursed ones. We're not going to be respected. Whatever little opportunity we've had in the last several decades to be tolerated in this nation likely won't continue. It may end long before the Lord returns. It may be like many other places in the world where Christians are living out this very exile, this very sojourning, this very suffering. Christ says, if you want to come after me, you're going to be persecuted. I suffered, so will you. So he has given us a covenant versus a country, or a culture, or comfort, 
But he has said that in that covenant, one day we will be with him in the eternal city, the everlasting city, the city that will be the city of God where there will be no temple because he will fill everything. There will be no sun because he will give light to everything. And there will be no need for any mediator other than Christ because he will be there with us forever dwelling with his people. The main point is he's our object of faith. He is the perfect man, meaning he is the perfect prophet and the perfect priest. He is the one who brings the perfect ministry, worship instead of religion, redemption instead of ritual, faith instead of fear, covenant instead of comfort today. Now let me just wrap up briefly with a warning about warnings. And there are three in this book, and they are often pulled apart out of context and used in some ways to, I think, at best warn Christians out of supposedly good motives, and at worst manipulate them into doubting their salvation, which would be the opposite of the goal of this letter. Very briefly, look at chapter 3 and verse 12. It says this very clearly, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's a very real warning. But thankfully, if you actually take something in its context, which is, I have said many times from this pulpit and will continue to say, it is better to understand context than to memorize a verse. I can't tell you how many verses on their own are learned, memorized, emblazoned on mugs and fridge magnets, crocheted into doilies that are so radically out of context to make it almost better as if the person had never memorized them because at least then they wouldn't be infecting their mind with error all the time. Understanding the context of scripture is so much more important and when you take the context of that warning and you broaden out the lens and you say in chapter four verses 11 to 13, here's the answer. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This isn't a sword held over their head. It's saying, be careful, don't do this. But by the way, I don't think you will. Let's not be one of those. For the word of God, his proclamation, his truth, his gospel, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a classic text, often memorized only in part. There's nothing that encouraging about that. <laughs> really what it reveals just how dangerous that word is. It cuts right through. No one can hide from it. It's not just a the verse that's meant to give you comfort about the truth of the Bible, it's a verse to say that God himself and his word will slice through into your very spiritual guts and tear you open and therefore be a receiver of that so that you can actually understand and believe the truth. This is knowledge. Secondly, there's a warning in chapter 5, verse 11. Look at that. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing Brothers and sisters, don't become dull. Don't become bored with this truth. The answer is in chapter six, verse nine, again, with the context. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The warning is there. Some of them had become dull. 
A dullness taken to its extreme could actually turn into a rejection of the gospel for which there would be consequences, but he says, I don't think that's the case with you. It actually ends with a comfort. You know, this is the assent, not the knowledge, but the actual assent and accepting of it. And then finally, chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, and I will conclude. 26 and 27 of chapter 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, or there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There's nothing untrue about that. But we're able to understand that in, in light of it, of everything that is true in that statement, the Verse 29 solves the problem. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserving of the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of his covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Do you see there is a spirit of grace? That spirit of grace gives the faith to believe. That spirit of grace means that there is no need for you to worry and fear that if you are in him, that he will grant you everything you need in order to respond in faith. The knowledge, the assent to it, and the faith in it. If there's one word that would summarize the book of Hebrews, it's that of assurance. And if there's one confession that best defines that, it's the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And allow me to end with these comforting words from the section on assurance. This is what we read. This infallible assurance is not so joined to the essence of faith that it is automatic and inevitable. A true believer may long await and fight with many difficulties before he becomes a partaker of it. It could be a battle for assurance. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given to him by God, he may, without any extraordinary revelation, attain this assurance by using the means of grace in the right way. Therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give the utmost diligence to make his calling and election sure, so that his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, in strength and cheerfulness for carrying out the duties of obedience. Not out of drudgery, but out of gratefulness, out of a thanksgiving to God for what he's done for us in Christ. These duties are the natural fruits of assurance, for it is far from inclining men to slackness. Far be it from us. To preach a gospel, it says, because of all that Christ has done for us, that we can therefore lay back and do nothing. There ought to be a fervent desire to please him, but it comes from the knowledge that it is by his spirit that we're able to.